Welcome to Secrets True Crime, the Eric Cates and Gypsy story. I'm your host, Amber Sitton. What is done in darkness will eventually come to light. That is the purpose of this podcast, to shine light on the story of Eric Cates, his beloved dog Gypsy, and the town of Empire, Alabama. Listener discretion is advised. The subject matter may involve violence, sexual content, murder, and adult themes. It is not suitable for younger listeners. This is episode three of a serial podcast, and they are designed to be listened to in order. Eric Cates was a good guy. Anyone who knew him, and many who didn't, will all tell you that. Eric was a protector, and he never hesitated to sacrifice his personal comfort and well-being to help others in need. But like every other human being on the planet, Eric had his own problem. Eric struggled with addiction. Could Eric's case still be an unsolved murder because of his addiction? What is the value of a life? Is the life of one more valuable than another? Is the life of a doctor who possesses the skills to save other lives worth more than the life of your average Joe? Is the life of your average Joe worth more than the life of someone with a drug addiction? This is a deep subject and debate. I only want to delve into the issue as it might apply to Eric and to the other Walker County murdered and missing. Walker County has so many missing people and lots of unsolved murders. A large percentage of these cases have a common thread. Many of these victims struggled with addiction, just like Eric did. Is it possible that because these victims were addicts, they and their families have been viewed by some as less important than other victims and other crimes? Not only has it been suggested to me by many of the victims' families, it has been brought up by some current and former members of law enforcement in the county. That makes this possibility quite hard to ignore. There has been evidence for decades that the murders of drug addicts, prostitutes, homeless people, and others who would be considered to be high-risk victims go unnoticed. This is why these groups of people have often been the target of serial murderers. In October 2019, the FBI released new information about Samuel Little that likely makes him the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history with a suspected number of victims believed to be over 93. To date, he has confessed to murdering 93 people. Many of these deaths were ruled to be overdoses and other death determinations that didn't require a criminal investigation. Some of the deaths were ruled undetermined, even though there were significant suspicious circumstances that suggested otherwise, which some law enforcement used as a weak crutch to justify a lack of investigation. On October 8, 2019, the New York Times published an article titled, How Did a Serial Killer Escape Notice? His Victims Were Vulnerable and Overlooked. They interviewed Jesse Lane Downs, the sister of one of Little's victims, Martha Cunningham. 
Martha was murdered in 1975, and her death was classified as unknown, despite the facts that her clothing had been removed, her body was bruised, and her purse was missing. The New York Times quotes her as saying, the police department did not ask the family any questions or anything when this happened. They could have settled this and look at all the people that got killed. I believe if it isn't already, this is going to be a very familiar sentiment around Walker County one day. How many people have already died because of the failure of others who chose not to do their job? Every human life is important and should be treated as such. But more importantly, we have families and friends who loved them unconditionally. These people are grieving. Some are desperately searching for their missing loved ones, and some are searching for answers and justice. I will post a link to the full New York Times article on the Secrets True Crime Facebook page. We met with Sheriff Nick Smith and discussed much of this. The reality is Sheriff Smith has only been in office since January 2019. Most of what we are discussing are problems and cases that he has inherited. While he was not in office when most of the things we are discussing occurred, it doesn't change the fact that it's now all on his shoulders to clean it up. And in my eyes, he appeared to embrace the challenge. Sheriff Smith promised Toby that he'd asked the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency for assistance on Eric's case, and he did. I asked him if the Walker County Sheriff's Office is still the lead agency. We're still the lead. Uh, I wanted them to just kind of come in and, and review what investigators prior to my administration had kind of done with the case. And they have done a lot, you know, the prior administration had done a lot of legwork on the investigation. They interviewed a lot of individuals. I think that there was lack of cooperation between Coleman and, and Walker County that could have probably help the investigation along if there would have been that cooperation. Uh, I feel like today we have that cooperation. During my campaign, I met with uh, Sheriff Gentry and we talked about two cases in particular, which was Eric Cates' case and also the Jordan Wilson case. It was a missing personnel. Coleman County that we feel like met foul play in Walker County and then the Eric Cates case. That's two cases that we kind of talked about that Sheriff Gentry felt like were really solvable cases if the two agencies would work together. I'm a member of a lot of missing persons groups online. When Sheriff Smith was elected, I watched many connected to Walker County celebrate his win and what it would mean to the family of the missing in this county. And I know that, you know, I mean, I'm 30, I'm the youngest sheriff in the state of Alabama. I've been an incumbent sheriff. It's hard to beat an incumbent, but um, I got to tell everybody, it, whether it's a property crime or what, we no department anywhere is going to solve every crime. And a lot of people don't understand the processes that it takes to get to that level of arrest. And like he said earlier, you get to that level of, okay, you've got enough probable cause to make an arrest, but then it turns into, do you got enough to convict them? You know, and that's kind of you know, where we're at on some of those cases is, you know, we need a body. We definitely can make some arrests if we can find out the location of a lot of these missing individuals here in Walker County would be a big start. And I think they're all 
tied together in that one corner section of the empire community. You know, I mean, it's difficult to say, but you've got certain individuals that's responsible for multiple deaths. I, I believe that. And it's all on that one little corner there. But uh, I just want to give people hope. I want people to know that their cases haven't been forgotten, that it is important. Uh, it's important to me to try to find some family closure. You know, like I said, we've exhausted a lot of manpower since I've been in office, but with zero results. But I want people to know that we're doing everything we can. If we got to drain ponds, we'll drain ponds. If we've got to dig dirt, we'll dig dirt. But, you know, I think at some point it's going to break loose. And when it does, I think uh, you're going to find out that there are certain individuals that are responsible for multiple deaths. This is the pond we just drained. And, uh, I mean, it's How deep was it? about 12 foot. We actually took cadaver dogs we took them out on the boat. Dogs indicated right around in this area. Uh, divers, one of the divers had, when he was feeling around, he grabbed something, he yanked on it. He pulled up a corner piece of a tarp. And we took that tarp to Jefferson County and just hid it in the woods in a can. Dog indicated on, on the can. And uh, so we felt really good at that point about draining it. And we, we drained it and dug it. I mean, dug all the way to the bottom and, uh, nothing. We thought, you know, it was the most promising spot, but, uh, then they come back and said the dog might have been hitting on some kind of methane gas or something in the pit. I don't know. We had seven different dogs and every one of those dogs hit in that spot. Were they able to recover the DNA off the tarp? We still got the tarp. Uh, I don't know what, what they're going to do with it from this point but we just wrapped this up about a week ago and like I said I, I do know you know we've got a new guy over our evidence Carl Carpenter and I know he sent off some bones that were recovered at some point when they were diving some ponds under the last administration that hadn't been sent off so they just looked at it and said it was animal bones so, and we don't really know without somebody a professional making that determination We need to be putting more effort, more emphasis on finding these people so we can hold somebody accountable. It's that same same group, and I don't know either they've got a really good spot. You know, we've heard all kinds of legends. You know, we've heard that they fed people to pigs, and we've heard that they dumped in the river. We've heard so much. And uh, we've checked out a lot of the stories, but, you know, nothing has come to be true. What about all the mines? Aren't there a lot of mines around mm -hmm. there? Yeah, we've heard mines. We've checked out. We actually got a our new Eastside investigator. He pulled out a grid map of uh, the mines, you know, and has been checking a lot of those areas. Part of me feels like, you know, you look at the Denton Hill case, I think a lot of that one... And a lot of our invest new investigators feel that way too. I think a lot of the information we get is diverted information to divert us away from where it's actually at. And that's why we felt so good about that location was because it was one that had never surfaced before. 
you know, right now, just in that area, you know, you've got uh, Jordan Wilson, which is a missing persons case. Miss Farley, that is a missing persons case out of Jasper. And that area was the last place that she was seen. Uh, you have Maxine Bieberbach, which is a missing persons case. And the last place she was seen was in that area. And almost every one of them have the same suspect. And a lot of these cases, you know, you look at the Jordan Wilson case. That case, I feel like we're pretty much there, but we're not going to be able to move forward until we have some remains or we we find a, a, a body. You know, we have uh, one that we're actively working now. Um, this is a uh, Jeremy Thompson. It's a new one. It's in June. He was reported missing in June. So we're currently looking for him. It's on the, on the east side of the county as well. Went out to several different locations. We've taken cadaver dogs, search dogs. We pretty much know who done it and, and what happened. But again, it's, we got to find where they're putting these bodies. You know, you don't, you don't know where to start. I mean, there's so many places they can, they can go. I, I still think that wherever these crimes were actually committed, I mean, I just can't see them being far from it. They just got a good spot. And hey, okay, maybe they are feeding them the pigs. I don't know. While I wholeheartedly agree with Sheriff Smith that there needs to be a focus on finding these missing people so they can hold those responsible accountable, I must point out that there are unsolved murder cases where the bodies aren't missing, like Eric's. With a focus on solving Eric's and other cold cases, you could achieve the same result. Locking up this handful of murderers running amok in East Walker County, putting them in a prison cell where they belong, and getting it done before more lives are lost. Toby has told us that Eric was planning to go to a barbecue the night he was murdered. He had told her about the barbecue earlier in the week, but he never said where the barbecue was. Eric mentioned this barbecue to others on the Friday before his death. When Eric's family discovered that Eric had been murdered, that was one of the biggest questions in their mind. Where was that barbecue that Eric planned to attend? Even though Empire is such a small town where everyone knows everyone else's business, no one seemed to know. Or if they did, they weren't willing to tell. Saturday night after we had found the truck with Eric and Gypsy in it uh, at Empire School, we got a call uh, later that night. We got several calls giving us tips. One in particular was the house in York Mountain where um, they were there cleaning out. They were there washing the yard and the porch and the house off with the water hose that there was a lot of blood there. We needed to get somebody to check it out. The people did not leave their name, and the caller was blocked. We couldn't see the number. I immediately called Chuck Tidwell and told him of the phone call, asked him could we get someone there. The next day, when they went out, the house had been burned. I asked for a copy of the fire marshal's report, if there's any way I, I could get it. And at the time, and that was not long after it happened, if I, you know, what happened, and nobody would 
tell me there was never a report that ever showed up. The house that burnt, it burnt the night after. They called and told us about Eric on Saturday. Well, then on Sunday morning when we got up is when we heard that the place had burnt that night. It said when they pulled up out there to interview them, the fire trucks was in the yard still putting out the fire. We felt this was such an important tip that we have gone over and over it since our first meeting with Toby and Chris. Michael quickly made a request to the fire marshal to request a copy of any reports they had on this fire. Michael received an email response from the state fire marshal's office. It stated very simply that they did not work a fire there. We were confused. We wondered, could Eric's family have the date wrong of when the fire actually occurred? We speculated, maybe there was no insurance. Or maybe if the house had been burned intentionally to cover a murder, the owner chose not to file an insurance claim. Michael responded to the email to ask the fire marshal's office if there had been a 100% loss structure fire there on another date. They never responded to him, so we decided to approach it in a different manner. We knew the fire department responded to the fire, so at a minimum, they'd have a dispatch report. Before we could send a request for the report, we ran into one of the family members who was rumored to be the hostess of the barbecue that night. We will call her Mary. We asked Mary if they had a barbecue that night and she told us they did not. We also asked when the fire occurred at that home. She told us it occurred a couple weeks before Eric was murdered. Mary was a friend of Eric's and the family who owned the house that burned, they are cousins of Eric's. A few days later, I called Mary. I asked again about the timing of the fire and told her about the tips Toby had received. She seemed to be shocked by this and adamantly insisted that they did not host a barbecue that night and that the home in question had burned well before Eric's death. Michael did send the FOIA request to the corner fire department, but before we received it, Mary went to the fire department to pick up a copy of it herself. She immediately texted me a copy of the report Per the report Mary provided me from the corner fire department, the house fire in question occurred on February 10th, 2015, 39 days before Eric and Gypsy's murder. Mary was upset to discover that Eric's family had suspected her family of being involved in Eric's murder for all these years. Why did the investigator tell Toby that the house fire was still smoldering and the fire department was on the scene on March 22nd. Why had he let Eric's family believe that there was merit to the story all these years? Every single tip that the family received over the years has been weighed against that story. It was hard to discount a tip of blood being washed out of a home where a barbecue had been held especially when said home supposedly burned to the ground the very next day. Sheriff Smith spoke of his belief that they are being given tips that are intentional diversions from the truth. 
Michael and I set out to try to eliminate as many of these unfound theories as possible, and I'd say that this one can be tossed to the side now. You do have to wonder, though, why was the family intentionally misled by a member of law enforcement? We discussed Eric's family's frustration and some of the issues they've encountered when we met with Sheriff Smith. You know, back to your corruption question, I'm not necessarily think it was a lot of corruption. I think it's just lack of transparency. And just uh, just telling somebody and being honest and just ignoring the situation makes their wheels start turning and think that you're trying to hide something right. instead of just being being honest and up front. I'll be honest, she, when she told her full story to us yesterday, I mean, there were moments that were really hard for me to even hear. No. They bother me on, on a very deep level when I hear things like coming down here and talking to the investigator about something. Four days after Eric died. And then mentioning to the investigator where she was going afterwards and she gets there and the people tell her, yeah, I got a phone call about 20 minutes ago that you were on the way. Mm-hmm. Who the hell does that? Yeah, you know. Why would you do that? Right. That's the kind of stuff that bothers the hell out of me. The story that got me was threatening to arrest. Yeah, that's that, four days that. after that because they were there asking questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's their right to to ask questions, and I mean, you give them. I understand. There's when there's an open investigation. There's certain things that you maybe you can't say at that time, but right. but when you try to ignore the situation and you try to push out outside counties that are wanting to help. And you're pushing them out. It makes you wonder, but you know I don't so much. Just going back, and what I remember of the files is I did see the last sheriff did send out a lot of directives and memos to the investigator assigned the case to check out certain things. Whether he properly checked those things out or if he even checked them out at all, you know that's still debatable. Whatever we can do, to try to get people talking, let them know we have it forgot about it, I think it's a good thing. That's what we're going to do. I think Toby's story together will will draw interest, will draw people. Hearing her story, any mama out there that hears her story, you know, their hearts will go out out to her. Uh, Just what she's had to do. I won't forget, uh, I was at the, uh, they did candlelight visual. And man, she give the sheriff and the district attorney the business. <laughs> so she wasn't shy about her displeasures. And I, you know, to a degree, I get our district attorney. I mean, he's not going to go out on a limb without a body right. on any cases. You know, in the Eric Cates case, you know, I mean, uh, there is a body. you know, there is a body. It's just uh, finding out who done it. And he's uh, his hands are tied. If you, Sheriff's Department has got to take the case to him, so. By just hearing what is a small piece of Eric's family story, I don't think there are many who don't understand Toby's displeasure, and I believe many of us feel it too. 
On the day Eric and Gypsy were found, before Toby left the scene, Chief Deputy Darren Bridges asked for her to come by his office that afternoon at 6 p.m. By the time Toby arrived, she was already aware that Eric's truck had been put outside in the rain at the county garage. She inquired about it to Chief Deputy Darren Bridges, and he told Toby they were having to move some things around to make room for it inside, and that they had security present to watch the truck. Little did he know that Toby had someone there watching the truck, and she was well aware there was no security present. She asked him if they could put a tarp over the truck to protect the evidence from the rain. Chief Deputy Darren Bridges assured Toby that the weather would not play a part in damaging evidence. With what we know now, that's a pretty ironic statement. One of the questions he asked her that afternoon was if Eric was working undercover for anyone. Toby asked him who he meant, and he said the U.S. Marshals, the FBI, or anyone else. A couple days after Eric was found, she had a similar question from investigator Chuck Tidwell. Why didn't I had to go and give DNA samples? And Chuck Tidwell asked me that day if Eric was working for the U.S. Marshals. I wonder what prompted both the chief deputy and an investigator with the Walker County Sheriff's Office to ask the mother of a victim if he was an informant and more specifically, an undercover agent for the U.S. Marshals. The reality is, this is just the tip of the iceberg with Eric and Gypsy's story, and one of many things that are going to make us all wonder. Eric's family received many calls and tips the day Eric and Gypsy were found. The accusations behind one of those tips would even lead to a drive-by shooting in the tiny town of Empire, After Eric's family was threatened with arrest for asking questions about the status of their son's murder investigation at the Walker County Sheriff's Office, things continued to go downhill. I think Wayne got a couple of calls. Uh, He needed to let it die. I had gotten messages that I needed to be quiet, stop doing interviews. If you're like me, You hear things like this, and it just seems crazy, right? Who warns a murder victim's family to be quiet and stop doing interviews? I have independent cooperation of this. Until this podcast, Eric's family, and specifically Toby, never publicly criticized the sheriff's office. You can easily locate these news stories through Google, and what you'll find is the family expressing hope and confidence in the sheriff's office. Efforts to silence them are just another crazy puzzle piece that just doesn't seem to fit unless your intention was to never solve the murders of Eric and Gypsy. Join us next time to hear more. If you have any information that could help in solving the murders of Eric and Gypsy, please call the Walker County Sheriff's Office at 205-522-6112. 
You may also email me at secretstruecrime at gmail.com or call our confidential tip line at 205-282-0740. If you are enjoying this podcast, be sure to follow or subscribe in your podcast player of choice and by giving us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcast. I'm active on social media and often share photos of Eric and Gypsy. Please follow Secrets True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Secrets Crime. If you are left still wanting even more content, please check us out on Patreon. We have filled it with great information about Susan and Evan and Eric and Gypsy. We had our first Zoom call for Patreon last week. While it was intended to be a 30-minute call with supporters of the podcast, it ended up being three times that long. Our next call is scheduled for December 10th. This podcast is an independent podcast. That means that everything that goes into making this podcast is done and funded by me. All of the investigative tools and resources are provided by Echo 7 Foxtrot. The tragedies we highlight and investigate had a tremendous impact on the victims, loved ones, and friends. We don't burden them with additional expenses to cover their cases. We donate our time and talents because we want to help and hope to find the answers they need that are so long overdue. We have launched our Patreon membership group, For as little as $5 per month, you can receive exclusive access to members-only photos, videos, early access to episodes, and much, much more. By becoming a patron, you too are helping us help these families. Your support as a patron of Secrets True Crime Podcast helps us cover the expenses associated with producing a high-quality podcast, traveling to conduct fieldwork and interviews, and obtaining the tools and equipment needed to conduct a thorough investigation. In short, your support as a patron allows us to do more for these families. Become a patron of Secrets True Crime Podcast today and let's solve these cases together. Go to patreon.com slash secretscrime. I'll also post the link on our Facebook page. The audio production for this podcast is by Kane Power at precisionpodcasting.com.